Hello, this is uh, an episode of the Eye for Eye Conversations. I am Rukmini Banerjee with Pratham. And with me, let me pass you on to my colleague, Vilima, over and, to you. And I'm Vilima Vadwa with the uh, Asar Center, uh, Pratham Education Foundation. Very nice to be here. And uh, like Rukmini, you and I were just talking uh, just now. It's kind of uh, feeling really nostalgic and missing Ashok because the last time we were on an eye for eye forum, it was Ashok interviewing the two of us. Remember? So really, yes, this is I feel Ashok is with us because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be in this conversation. Yeah. So I don't know if you dedicate sessions to Ashok, but we would dedicate not just this session, but all your sessions, I think, uh, yeah. to Ashok. Yeah. Uh, so I thought what we can do is let me kick off the conversation. Um, Vilip and I have worked together for many years. Uh, and so in a way, we are sort of two sides to the same coin, if you may. Uh, Vilima, you want to start with the sort of describing during COVID how we adapted in Asar uh, to the conditions and sort of what was the sequence of events that happened. And then at some point you can stop and lob a question over the fence to me and then I can take it from there and back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, as many of you may know, we, you know, we were doing ASAR every year for from 2005 to 14. And then we started after a break in 2015, we started a new series in 2016, where we were doing uh, the big foundational ASAR across all 600 rural districts of the country every other year. So we did it in 16 and 18. And then so 2020 was uh, the year that we were going to go across the country uh, to do ASAR. And then, of course, you know that in March 2020, the world shut down. And so, uh, I mean, and, you know, initially we thought, oh, maybe things would open and maybe we'd be able to do it. But it was clear very soon that there was no way that we were going to be able to go into the field. But at the same time, it was very clear that we needed an ASAR, I mean, an annual status of education report for 2020 because schools were shut, uh, you know, as in the rest of the world, even here, uh, governments pivoted really fast, tried to share all kinds of learning materials online. Uh, and it was very important to know what was going on. You know, there was a fair amount of information, Rukmini, on the kind of stuff that state governments were sharing, but we had absolutely no idea um, what was going on inside the homes? Did children have access to these materials? Were there any learning activities going on? What was happening uh, at home with parents and siblings and relatives? What was happening in the community? So, so we needed to pivot really fast. And so, okay, you know, wanted to do a national survey to do a national survey, which had to be done on the phone, that was very clear. We'd never done a phone survey before. Uh, we needed a frame and there is no nationally representative frame of phone numbers. And that's where we got kind of lucky uh, because, uh, you know, as part of us, sir, we collect phone numbers of about 350,000 households uh, for monitoring purposes. 
And so we had uh, those numbers from 2018, which was uh, a nationally representative frame. And so we decided to you know, learn as much as we can about these things, about the phone survey, and use that as a frame. So we did manage to do a phone survey uh, in 2020, which was done in September, about six months uh, after schools were shut. And, uh, and then again, followed it up a year later in September of 2021 uh, with a phone survey. Now, um, basically this was, these surveys were focused on looking at children's access to learning materials during the period that schools were closed and, um, and their enrollment status. Because uh, we, you know, as you know, ASSERT is a foundational tool. We didn't want to test young children on the phone. So the phone surveys were not looking at learning assessments. Instead, they were looking at uh, access to learning materials and what they were doing at home. And to just kind of quickly take you through these findings, there are three, I would say there are three major uh, findings uh, in terms of what we found. One was enrollment, what was going on with enrollment. Now, you know, apart from this whole question of how it would affect learning levels, uh, uh, these school closures, there was also a fear, especially in developing countries that older children would drop out. Uh, because, you know, budgets are squeezed uh, and maybe, and especially for girls. And, and indeed, what we found was that in 2020, uh, the proportion of not currently enrolled children went up from about 2.5% to about 4.6%, 4.5%. But when we kind of dug a little bit deeper into looking at, you know, age groups who are not currently out of school, these were mostly young children. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it could be that they were waiting for enrollment, schools shut down in March, the school year starts in April. So it could be that, you know, so these not currently enrolled children uh, were mostly in the younger age groups. The other thing that we saw, and in 2021, this number remained stable. So we saw an increase of about two percentage points, but then uh, it remained stable. In 2021, what we saw in terms of enrollment was an increase in private schools. So, um, you know, it's, uh, the proportion of children in private schools has been kind of steadily rising in rural India from about uh, about 16% in 2006 till it reached about 30% in 2014 and kind of stabilized there, uh, 30, 32%. Then in, in the first year, we didn't see any decrease in private school, but in 2021, there was a fall of about three percentage points in the proportion of children enrolled in private schools and a corresponding kind of increase in government school enrollment. Um, uh, actually a little bit more. So from about 65% enrolled in government schools, it went up to 70%. But again, Having said that, you know, one needs to qualify that because we know that during this pandemic, uh, uh, lots of uh, smaller affordable private schools shut down. So it's possible that children, you know, had to shift because their school shut down. My, we know that migrants went home during this period. So it's possible and it's likely that the children of these migrants were more likely to be 
in, in government schools. Uh, also, another thing was that government schools were very, even though they were closed, they were very successful in distributing rations, the midday meal rations. So that could be another reason why ch uh, people shifted their children uh, to uh, government schools. And of course, budgets being squeezed, right? So you have to pay a tuition in private schools. So, so I would say that, you know, it's it's still too early to say we need, we need another data point to see where this number has kind of uh, settled now. And, and in terms of uh, access to learning uh, materials, the big finding actually, I mean, and, and it was really, it was really commendable that pretty much most children had access to uh, their, the textbook of their current grade and, and even more so in government schools. Um, and so, so they had the textbook and this was the case in 2020 where about 85% children in government schools said that they had the textbook of their current grade and this number was even higher in 2021. Where the system was lagging was that other than textbooks, uh, only about a third of the children said that they had uh, received some other kind of learning material, and uh, and uh, in the uh, and those who had received learning material, most of it was on WhatsApp. Um, and now, uh, and so that was the other thing that we saw during the pandemic was this huge increase in smartphone coverage. So where it was about 35% in 2018, it was almost up to 70% in 2021, right? But, but the thing is that, you know, even though there is, there is a smartphone in the house, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, <clears throat> that uh, the child has access to it. In fact, in 2021, uh, about a fourth of the children said that, yes, there was a smartphone, but they didn't have access. So that these are, in some sense, the uh, major findings of the phone survey. But like I said, Rukmini, you know, we did not test children on, uh, on the phone. So, you know, is it is it enough to have a textbook to learn? Uh, is it enough to get, for some children, to get some things uh, on the smartphone and especially younger kids you know who are just learning to read can you learn to read on a on a smartphone um, so I'm going to you know uh, throw this at you in terms of what we found in terms of learning outcomes during the pandemic but before going to the learning outcomes I have to say that uh, you know for since 2005 till 2018 every asset has focused on learning outcomes you know, the main usual large nationwide assets have focused on is, is a child in school? Is she able to read some basic text? Can she do arithmetic? And we've always known that the processes behind this are important because this, what you see in terms of learning level is an outcome and it is influenced by many factors in school, in the home. And I do think looking back and there is a tendency to sort of uh, retrospectively make things look more rosy than they were. So I don't want to do that. It was a very tough time during the lockdown and after. But because we could not meet families or children one-on-one, -on -one, because we had to learn how to do things on the phone, I think it forced us to kind of narrow down on what is askable on the phone in terms of what is going on in the household. And you know, in addition to what Vilima just said, I would say that the picture of the household that came through both these phone surveys 
was one that was actually quite, uh, I would say, promising. I mean, what it showed is that even, and these are, you know, bulk of children in rural India did not have any access to Zoom or online classes or any of that. That was clearly an urban phenomena and an urban elite phenomena, probably. Uh, but what it showed was that the adults around the children. So how did the textbooks reach the families? There were teachers in government schools. There were officials in the government school system who made that possible. Uh, we had questions which said, did uh, you have any uh, interaction with your teacher, whether on the phone or in person? Did you go to the school? Did the teacher come to your house? I don't remember the exact number, but it was you know, substantial that there was a lot of reaching out that was happening be between the school and the home. Uh, and within the home, even if you looked at parents by their educational level, so say if you had both parents who were you know, had finished primary education or below, or if you looked at parents who had high education across the, and I think education is also a proxy for income. Uh, if you looked across this, uh, this whole range, you would see that there were efforts made within families, even in uneducated families, to spend some time with children to help them. Yeah. Um, siblings often are not, uh, you know, ever since, uh, uh, the Heckman reports of the 1960s of the influence of the home and the school on children's achievement levels. Uh, it's always parents, it's always family, but very clearly in our data, siblings uh, seem to play a big role. And as kids were, uh, you know, as uh, the higher class kids had more help from siblings than from parents, which I completely understand because I cannot teach anything more than basics anymore. You come to me with a nine standard math problem we'll have to send her to Willema. Uh, and uh, so I think that this, what was happening in the family, what was happening in the community, what were teachers doing, a quantitative view of that showed that, yes, the schools were closed, but there were a lot of human beings doing lots of other things in trying to keep children engaged. And I think that is an important pointer for, you know, whatever this, you know, after the COVID or after the schools have opened phase, that if we got support from families at a very difficult time in the life of the family, in the life of the community, why should that help not be sustained and built on when things are a little bit easier? So I think that the family involvement was certainly a big part of uh, what we saw. And while a lot has been made of these online classes and Zoom and whatnot, I would say the fact that uh, even in poorer households, cell phone ownership has increased, which was obvious because that was the only way to connect. But that children, while a third of the children didn't have access, I mean, two thirds of the children did, or you know, more than that did. So this, you know, the rising of the level of digital connectivity, basic capability across the country, I think is another rise in the level of the ocean that should not be discounted. You know, today we are probably readier to use phones for different things. Yes, there will be inequalities in access as there are inequalities in many other things. We recognize those. But I think uh, if we had done a digital readiness of using phones to do education, health, whatever it may be in 2020 February, and if we do it in 2023 February, I think there'll be a huge difference. So, I mean, these are just, uh, yeah, these are just adding to, you know, what um, what Willema said. 
And at some level, I think, even for Asar, we've been asked many times, you know, what is the process that leads to that outcome? We have usually uh, not answered it. But I think the 2020, 2020 and the 2021 Asars did force us to think not only about how to get at these inside household dynamics to the extent it's possible to do from far away and to the extent that these are you know actually measurable um, and i'm not saying we are going to put that in the big assets that we are doing now but i think it, the covid forced us to try new things which we wouldn't have tried otherwise but just just to kind of reiterate what we saw really what you described is this distance between the home, the school, and the community seem to become, uh, you know, uh, smaller, right? These everybody, yes, it was a really hard time, but kind of everybody kind of stepped up to the plate, if you will, to help, right? So <laughs> that, and that is something that, you know, uh, moving forward, we should not, we should not just let it go and go back to business as usual, yeah. So, you know, uh, 2020, there was no question of, uh, uh, measuring learning outcomes. I think we were still coming to grips. I mean, nobody had any clue how long schools would be closed. At some level, when we did ASA 2020, uh, and we did it in September, which is the usual time in which we do it, it was really only two or three months into what would have been the new school year. So, you know, we are used to having long vacations. We are used to children coming back. We are used to attendance kind of stabilizing by September. So I would say the 2021 was, you know, we everybody did what they could based on what they knew. By 2021, I think there was a real concern that this thing is going on for very long. It was not clear when schools would ever open. And so, you know, there was, I mean, we too were very concerned that we need to look at, you know, everybody's talking about learning loss and about, you know, opportunity not to learn and so on. But how serious and how deep is it? Given that even pre-COVID, things were, you know, not good. You know, our learning levels, if you just track ASAP data over time, have been stagnant, if anything, after in the early part of the, you know, 2010 to 2020 decade, they dipped a bit, but they were slightly slowly coming up. And so we know that these basic ability of children to read and to do math had not changed significantly in the last 15 years. There, you know, there were all kinds of worries, and we all know that, you know, in the press, in common conversation, you know, that these were things that, you know, we were concerned about. And so uh, uh, sometime in February or March, we were able to, we could, it was clear that you couldn't do the whole country because there were still parts of the country that were, you know, affected. Uh, we made a big push to see how, in how many states could you actually think about doing a field survey. And there was all kinds of safety issues. You know, ASER is done by uh, in each district by volunteers from uh, universities, colleges, NGOs. So what kind of risk would be undertaken if people were leaving their own home and going into the village? Would they be allowed to, you know, there are all kinds of sort of safety concerns that we usually, you know, don't have. But, um, you know, and while arrangements were, and also, you know, we were concerned that we've always done us at a particular time of the year, doing it off calendar. What does that mean? How can it be done? And what happened eventually was that we were moving forward, thinking that at least a few major states, if we could do us at the same time, 
we'd at least have a glimpse of the country at a particular point in time. But by the time we got ready and moving, it was really only Karnataka, which we could complete in March 2020, because right. pretty, pretty soon after that, the second wave came and we got out of and completed the Karnataka, the state level survey by the, I would say literally by the, you know, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Vilma, you remember the data entry was delayed because the- Because the, the forms were sitting with the volunteers. Volunteers, they, they yeah. couldn't move yeah, yeah. because, you know, second wave arrived and you know, so on and so forth. But uh, you cut a long story short, we kept, uh, you know, we all, uh, you know, somehow coped with the second wave. Uh, but the conversations that had started earlier in the year, I think that, you know, when it was okay to talk again about things other than COVID, uh, which probably we started doing by August or September, um, we had been talking to Chhattisgarh government uh, prior to, uh, you know, around the same time that there were the, the, the conversations in Karnataka. And so Chhattisgarh government actually very proactively not only wanted to do an ASAR, they wanted to do ASAR in a way that they could have district, solid district level estimates so that they could plan. So the Chhattisgarh Asar was, I would say, an officially commissioned Asar saying, we want to know where our state is. And uh, West Bengal, so uh, Chhattisgarh Asar for the state was done in, I think, October, November, 2021. September, October, yeah. September, October, 2021. And uh, a similar conversation happened with West Bengal government. Uh, where we were able to get in a state-level ASAR in December of 2021. So three ASARs, state-level ASARs done in 2021, one between the first wave and the second wave, two after the second wave, uh, and the last one, uh, the West Bengal one, done you know practically in 2022. And I think this was also something that we, um, uh, you know, we learned a lot from. Um, uh, to me, and I, I mean, actually, strangely, Vilima and I have not sat down and talked a great deal about this. So it's interesting to me. You know, the further away I go from 20, uh, 2005, the more amazed I am how these trends over time help you to think. Uh, and so what I want to do, Vilima, is just get go back to you if you want to describe the learning um, you know what did we what did we learn about learning levels from these three so we at the you know we ended up doing actually four assets in 2021 we did the big phone survey and then we did three state surveys uh, you know starting in february march and ending in in december uh and you know so it, it, the Nice thing about Asar is that there is a trend. So, you know, uh, it's very difficult to talk about learning loss unless you have many data points because you need to know how learning levels have been changing to even talk about that, oh, this year was different, right? Uh, what we found actually in, in uh, these three states was actually absolutely common across all three. I mean, they were at different levels, right? In both reading and math, the three states are at different levels. And, you know, the ranking is also different in, in reading and math. Uh, all three states, if we start comparing from, say, about 2014, in uh, reading levels as well as math levels, in, and I'm talking about primary grade standard three, standard five, 
had either improved a little bit or remained stable. So they were not falling, okay? Uh, and this was true, both reading, math, all three states. Uh, what we saw in, in um, 2020, 21, when we did these uh, three surveys was that in all three states, the you know, learning levels dropped. Uh, um, in grade three, in grade five, uh, in both reading and math. And not only did they drop, so we're not talking about a little bit of the drop. They came to a level which was below the 2014 level. So it, actually, it was actually amazing that this happened for both reading and math and across grades and in all three states. So to me, that seems to be that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly robust finding, uh, but this was, you know, what we saw in 2008. And uh, um, Asar, as you know, does not track children. We don't go back to the same children. It's a, it's a repeated cross-section, but because we've been doing it since 2005, every year since uh, till 2014, and then every other year after that, there is a trend, right? So the, for each state, you can look at what has been happening to uh, learning levels over a fairly long period of time. So even though you're not tracking children, you can certainly track what we call um, artificial cohorts. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to uh, put this to you, Rukmini, uh, to talk about, you know, what we learn from the trends. So, you know, we've, um, you know, obviously we have all heard a lot of concern about learning loss uh, and about the fact that, uh, you know, both children forgot what they knew and children didn't have the opportunity to learn new things. But what I think uh, didn't get talked about perhaps enough was the fact that the learning levels were quite low pre-COVID as well. Uh, and in a way, this heightened consciousness about learning, I think as we look ahead, uh, again, this is a is this, uh, unanticipated uh, consequence of COVID that the learning crisis, which should have taken up our attention for the last 10 years, maybe didn't get it that way. But the fact that, you know, because we were aware that schools were closed, uh, I'm sure the new education policy, which also came out in July 2020, was aware of the learning crisis from before. But I think it all happened at the same time. So just going back and adding to what Willema said, if you looked at these artificial cohorts over time, to us, it was important that before we got all caught up in what loss had happened between 18 and 20 or 18 and 2021, 20, let's look at what a normal year, in a normal year, and we had many, many normal years for which we had other data uh, prior to COVID, what was a normal year in a Karnataka or a Chhattisgarh or West Bengal like? And then, look at this diff, the, the change between 18 and 21 to say, what did that look like? And this is what I mean, is that when you have, you know, in, in up to 14, we had annual data. And for, from 14 to 18, we had at least three measurements. It really enabled you to see that over a long period of time, where did this COVID come in? And of course, there was a dip. But can that dip, as Wilma said, be compared with what level from what before? And you know, if you if the dip is compared to where, let us say, learning levels were in 2012 or 2010, then how long did the system, if it just did its business as usual, you know, take to come to some you know slightly higher level? 
But if we take, for example, uh, the case of Karnataka, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can see that, and Karnataka is an interesting case. And the reason I bring it up is because we had this measurement of 2018-2000, school year of 2020. Uh, and Karnataka government, and now I'm putting on my Pratham hat, as opposed to the Asar hat, Karnataka government, in as soon as schools open were possible to open in 2021, um, actually almost 2022, I would say, January of earlier this year, the whole of 2021, they were they were getting ready for whenever schools open, what can we do for learning recovery? And for their grades four and five, they have in the past also used a method that Pratham um, you know, has evolved called teaching at the right level. So they were able to get into schools beginning of 2022 and work on these basic uh, levels for grades four and five. And we had a good idea where grades four and five were in let's say, uh, you know, February, March of 2021. But what we saw is that in a normal pre-COVID year, the percentage gain that any cohort makes moving from say second grade to third grade or third grade to fourth grade is anywhere depending on the state and the grade, maybe like 15 percentage points uh, on in a normal non-COVID year. But when you come in post-COVID or when once schools open, with a very focused uh, plan to say, I'm going to rebuild my children's basic skills, which Karnataka did. In the period between January and March of this year, they were able to bump up their learning gains, the ability of children to read, let's say a simple uh, story at the second grade level, 25 percentage points. And this is data coming from the whole state using the very similar tools to Asar which means that yes, the situation was not good before, the situation became worse now, but if you recognize and see the situation for what it is and act accordingly, keeping aside your new normal business, normal curriculum, you may actually be able to rebuild better than where you were pre-COVID. So, you know, the examples here that I'm giving is partly to say we have data. We have data that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously we will praise our own Asar, but <laughs> even if I wasn't a core Asar person, I would say it. we have data that everybody can understand. Can your child read a simple paragraph? Can your child read a story? And you remember that all families, educated or otherwise, were engaged in helping their children. So even families like that can understand this kind of an indicator or data. And imagine if a state government moving quickly can show a big jump then if an appeal is made to all families to say, just read with your children every night, you can make a big gain. You can compare it to the trend in your state or your district from the past. And so that line, which had been flat or slightly going down before COVID, went down further during the school closure years, can be bumped up because we realize that, you know, some action is needed. Um, my own feeling is that the... the uh, new education policy with its focus on building foundational skills, particularly in the early grades, is playing a big role in this, change what you're doing, move into this basics. And I think the ASER data will, uh, you know, can help looking at what you've done in the past and position you quite neatly for what you need to do for the next uh, couple of years. So I, I, you know, I want to move our conversation to the point at which we are right now, 
September 2022, by the grace of, you know, whoever looks after us from up there, the survey is in the field. Yes. It will be the first major ASAR countrywide since 18. Between 18 and 22, the world has turned upside down and probably the right side up again. And so Willema, on the eve of this ASAR 2022, spreading all over India, what's in your mind? What are you thinking? Um, you know, uh, go on. No, it's, it's, it's really, it's really very, very exciting. I mean, we've been waiting to do this for four years. Uh, the last big asset was in 2018. Uh, you know, even though, even though we've done like five assets since the pandemic started, um, it hasn't been our main asset across every district of the country. And, and it's, it's, it's in the field. In fact, Rupini, uh, two thirds of it will be done uh, by the end of September because there's so many holidays in, in October. So really, really excited to see the results. Uh, lots of things uh, in terms of now schools, you know, had started to open, then they shut down, especially, for, you know, for younger kids. And, and I would say now they've been open for about six months, okay, uh, across the country. So, and our last measurement, even in those three states, was in December of last year. So, you know, we've, we've had, like you said, we've had an opportunity to kind of shake up things. And I think uh, this assert will tell us uh, what has really happened. Have we... Have we made up any of the ground that we lost uh, in the and in we have estimates for uh, three states uh, like we just talked about uh, other states we can assume it was pretty similar uh, situation so where are we on that um, situation in enrollment has been fairly fluid. Uh, Hopefully, we tend to uh, we will see where these numbers do we see a continued rise in government school enrollment or has that stabilized? And you know, private school we see an increase in private school enrollment. What about uh, uh, children cu currently not enrolled? We saw, like I said, it was mostly among younger kids. Now there has been time for kids to get uh, re-enrolled in school. So I think this asar is 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 very exciting for a variety of reasons because there's been all this uncertainty where we haven't really had information you know we've become so used to having us there first every year then every other year that you know having a fairly good idea of what is happening on the ground and now there has been this long period where we we don't know and uh, so there will be you know uh, things will get clearer so it's very exciting from uh, that point of view and and uh, just you know in in terms of i think the 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 everybody has been so cooped up i think you know this asar if you talk to the asar volunteers and the asar teams everybody is out right and it's 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 it seems like that you know we we back to almost normal the office as you know is completely empty everybody is out in the field and it's 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 very nice to see all these photos coming back from this field uh, of you know our people out there children back in school so very excited to uh, to see the results uh, but uh, two questions or one question that one of the things that has happened over this period of, say, the last 10 years, or even if I look at the last couple of years, 
is there has been an acceleration of measurement of learning in lots of other ways. Uh, even during the school closure period, there were other studies that were done that uh, tried to measure learning. Uh, uh, you know, of course, there were sampling questions about if you didn't have a prior sample, then how do you go back and so on and so forth. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about other measures of learning that happened during the lockdown, I mean, during the period that schools were closed. And also the government did a national achievement survey in November of uh, 2021. And a actually the first early grades uh, yeah. assessment, which was the national achievement survey still continues to be a pen and paper test. But the, but the assessment that was done by NCRT in, uh, I believe, uh, February, March in that period uh, was done, was an oral assessment. So, you know, what are your thoughts about all these different measurements that are, you know, coming into this space uh, and seems to have accelerated a bit in this period when schools have been closed? Yeah, actually, there, there was, there were a large number of surveys that were done by various organizations uh, when the schools were closed. And like us, um, mostly they were focused on, uh, uh, you know, access to learning materials, uh, where uh, Asar had a, a slight bit of an edge is that most of these surveys, because, you know, you don't, we don't have phone numbers uh, for, for the entire country. So most of the surveys that we saw were done by organizations, were administered on, like us, you know, on the phone numbers that they had. And typically they tended to be, you know, participants in their program. So Magic Bus had a this thing, Oxfam had a survey. But all, what all these surveys basically confirmed was what I had said earlier was that uh, the the access to digital materials was, was fairly limited. Uh, kids had difficulties in accessing them and kind of dealing with them. In terms of learning assessments, Rukmini, there were not that many learning assessments that mm -hmm. was done. There was one field study that was done by Azim Premji Foundation, uh, uh, again done in the field with the teachers that they work in the in their own programs, and they also saw uh, large drops in learning levels, like we did in the three uh, three uh, state surveys. Uh, so you know, it, it, during it, the given the the format that the surveys took, it was pretty much focused on uh, access. Now, like you said, towards the end, we've we've had two large measurements uh, by the government. Uh, one was the NAS, and one was the FLN survey. Now, uh, it's it's not really, and you know, we've talked about it ourselves. It's not really fair to compare. NAS and Assert because the, they are completely different. Um, NAS tends to be a more a traditional uh, learning assessment in terms of it is school-based, it is uh, pen and paper, it is, uh, uh, you know, it the, the assessment itself is uh, based on grade level competency, different subjects, uh, children being tested uh, on different levels depending on their grade. Uh, and so it, it, it's a completely different assessment. But having said that, it tells the same story. 
So, you know, you can't, I can't take one number from Asar and, and compare it with a number in NAS, uh, like you would say for enrollment. Like enrollment, we all understand what enrollment is. I can take enrollment numbers from uh, Asar and compare them with DICE numbers, for instance, because you're trying to measure the same thing. But uh, uh, it is difficult to compare NAS and uh, Asar because it, the, it, the, the assessment is different, um, the way it is administered, the target population, all of that is different. But having said that, uh, they, they are also showing learning losses. And the same thing. So, and, and finally, talking about the FLN assessment, which was actually very, very welcome, because, you know, as you know, Rukmini, you and I both have been, have been, uh, you know, uh, proposing this, it, it, it's been like, you know, banging our heads against a brick wall that how do you give a child who is in grade two and unable to read a pen and paper test, right? And so finally, we've seen uh, an oral one-on-one -on -one assessment uh, uh, done by uh, the government. Uh, I, I have not looked at it uh, very uh, carefully, but whatever I've seen, they've got these state-level report cards, and even there, see, they don't, they don't have a trend. So it's mm. difficult when you don't have a trend. I can't say, oh, there has been a learning loss of, say, one year, which is what we are finding a little bit over than a year. Because if I have a trend, then I know what the trajectory is year on year. So I can say, oh, business as usual, uh, we see an improvement of, say, 12 to 15 percentage points. What we are seeing that every year, what we are seeing that is half of that this year. So they, they cannot, so the FLN survey can't, you can't use that to say what has been the learning loss, but what you're seeing is that there are large numbers of young children who are not proficient, who are unable to read and do basic arithmetic that is expected at those younger, uh, at those earlier grades. Actually, you know, as you were saying, I was thinking that while we have uh, our basic asset, and for some reason, I was thinking NAS is like a Kajivaram sari, which you <laughs> bring out for certain occasions. It's elaborate. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's heavier. Uh, and, you know, NAS has done, uh, has been done in the past, you know, periodically. Uh, maybe the periodicity will change as we go forward. Asar may be a cotton sari that you wear every day. So it's available, it's lighter, but uh, it's something that everybody can understand. And I think for a country as diverse and as huge as India, you know, more the merrier. And if all of these are pointing in the same direction, then you know that regardless of whether you're wearing a kanjiwaram or you're wearing a cotton sari, you know, something needs to be done. Um, I also think that we should uh, remember that in the gap years that we've had in Asar, uh, between uh, Asar, between 16 uh, and 18, in 17, we did a much smaller exploratory Asar on the age group 14 to 18. And some of the uh, tasks or items that we used, uh, that we learned were very useful in Asar 2017, we were able to use for the whole country in 18, particularly in terms of 14 to 18 year olds, what kind of everyday calculations can they do, right? Uh, do they have awareness about cell phones, you know, things like that. So if we were, this year we are, of course, doing our standard, basic, khadi, asar. Anyway, but I'm saying that this year we were committed to doing, uh, you know, the basic one. But it is possible in the years to come, we have two age groups that we've worked on before. 
One is a four to eight and one is a 14 to 18. That four to eight age group that we focused on in 2019 was also very interesting. We had a sense that the new education policy is coming. And in the new education policy, there is going to be a greater focus on, you know, uh, like looking seriously at not just first standard onwards, but to the uh, Anganwadi or whatever, the preschool age kids. And so in some sense, if in subsequent years, we were to go back and look at these two age groups and use, you know, tools and methods similar to what we've done before, we could also look at what was happening in more depth in each of these age groups. The first, uh, you know, the young age group, as we all know, the kids who are in first or even in second today have never had any exposure to any preschool or school. So in that sense, they're a very, very different cohort from any cohort of that age group that came before. And it could be argued that depending on where you were, you probably didn't have a very typical childhood either in terms of mingling with children, you right. know, running around and so on and so forth. And similarly, in the 14 to 18 age group, you know, you probably are today in 10th standard, but the last time you were in school was sometime in 8th. And you haven't had this, you know, build up towards your board exams. There's all sorts of things that have been done up with board exams in the last two years, you know, in terms of what do you ask, how do you do it, and so on. So I do think that, you know, we are, uh, you know, we are constantly, uh, the ASER team, uh, the Pratham teams thinking about where should ASER go in the future. But uh, while we think big and blue sky thoughts, we certainly have these two age groups on which we've worked. In the uh, four to eight, it wasn't only literacy and numeracy foundation or otherwise. There was a whole kind of a breadth of skills starting from you know, a variety of cognitive activities, uh, social, emotional, and so on that have been tried on a certain, you know, certainly on a large scale. And our new education policy, the direction that it is showing it is one is a continuum across these uh, this age group so that you think of a foundational end stage about where we should reach, which is what the Nipun Bharat goals are. But I think it points also to the fact that this foundation that we have to build has to be broad and deep. And therefore, what is the appropriate uh, measurement that helps in uh, helping us all think about this? And the 2000... Um, 19 Asar was very useful in that sense because you could see how strong cognitive capability was highly correlated to you know to numeracy, how a variety of language skills were connected uh, quite positively and directly to you know reading and so on. The 14 to 18 age group has always been one of the ones that is sort of a black box. You know there hasn't been other than India occasionally saying we should do pizza. I don't think we've, and everybody should pass the board exams and do very well. I don't think we've focused really on what we want children in that age group to be doing. So in some sense, Wilma, I feel like, you know, uh, you, we've been doing this for years, but I think our work for the next couple of years is quite cut out. Uh, while we need to do new things and learn uh, new methods, uh, think about new directions, but even building off of one more layer of the four to eight and one more layer of the 14 to 18, I think is urgently required for India. Yes. Uh, uh, if Ashok was in this conversation with us, Vilima, what would he have said at this point? Um, and you know, he had a very wonderful way of provoking while being really sweet. I think that's a, it's a skill that very few people have, 
What do you think? Know, you know, I don't know what he would have said provoking, but he would have certainly said one thing, you know. So I'm also going to, uh, Rupani, publicly announce the release of ASA 2022, which is January 18th. Okay. Uh, the date has been fixed and he would have said, I want to come back to you after that and then ask you whether what you thought at that time, you know, is that something that we actually uh, see? Because... Uh, uh, yeah, he would have asked us to predict and then come back to us to see whether that prediction uh, uh, has come to. What do you think? So I think he would be smiling when we said that we have to do our normal answer and we have two other things that we've done before we want to continue. And he would have had that, uh, that very Ashok-like grin and said, guys, but how long are you going to keep doing this? What are you going to do next? And I think that is something that we all need to think about because the further forward we go, the more important the whole trend from 2005 onwards looks like. We have, at least for India, a Nippun Bharat goal, whether we are looking at a timeline of 2025 or 2027, it's in the next couple of years. There is an SDG goal for the world at large, which is 2030. And I certainly think that this trend that we have, this whole approach that we have, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how to say this humbly, because I, I feel that this was, we may have been a little ahead of our time in starting this measurement of reading and math in 2005. But today, many years later, this is what everybody is like concerned about. And I do think that we need to carry this thread up to a logical point. Uh, and, you know, these in this next couple of years, as resources, interest, priorities, not only in India, but across the world, you know, focus in on this, how do we build the first foundation well, while not forgetting those who have passed that age, but still don't have their foundation in place. I personally feel that there is a big role still, still for this very simple uh, assessment uh, that needs to continue. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I remember when we first started doing this and people saw our tool, it was 2005, and they said, oh, come on, everybody can read this, right? You, you know, you're not, you're not uh, planning this okay, you're not thinking right, uh, you, you know, you'll get 100% kids can read this. And, and at that point, we said, uh, yes, maybe, in which case, that'll be a baseline and that'll be great. And then maybe we will do another one with a higher level tool. But here we are sitting in 2021 and kids are still struggling with the same thing. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree that, you know, uh, this is this is a very, you know, I think I said that in one of the, the pieces that I wrote for IFI, that this, this, this whole issue of learning levels, the education landscape, it, it's, it's like a very large elephant, right? We are working on one part of it, but there's plenty of space for other players doing different things. So like when we were talking about mass and so on. So I, yes, I absolutely agree that, uh, you know, um, there is still, and you know, and we are committed in this cycle for doing, you know, five uh, big assets. So that that will take us till twenty twenty six. So, uh, 
I mean, you know, I've been um, uh, across the country, the, you know, we have about 1,000, 1,200 master trainers for us. And who are the ones who, uh, you know, lead the ASAR survey in the district? In each district, it's a local group, a local organization, local institution, often teacher training colleges, NGOs, universities, who are the actual uh, uh, surveyors for us. And as, uh, as, as we have been speaking and visiting these state level trainings, I'm so impressed that there are in every group of state level master trainers, there are people who eight years ago, 10 years ago were surveyors. And who have come back? I, I was, yeah, I was just in UP, and they've just completed their state level training. And there were two uh, gentlemen who have been doing assert first as surveyors and later on as master trainers since 2006. And I asked them, you know, what do you do otherwise? And one of them said, "Main to kheti badi karta hu, wohi mera kaam hai." But assert ke season mein mujhe UP ka chehra dekhna ka mauka milta hai. And to me, at some level, this is what this whole asar is about. It is about the data. It is about trends over time. It is about rigor. It is about systematically, but simply doing what India needs. But it's also about lots and lots of people every year, 30, 40,000 volunteers who get a first-hand feel of where our children are at and hopefully feel part of the responsibility of changing what is on the ground. Uh, and to me, this is one of the most, uh, uh, you know, enduring values of us is that we as citizens of India are as responsible for what yes. happens to the next generation as anybody who is in an institutional structure like a school or a social arrangement like a family. Yeah. Um, I, I, we should probably start concluding. I wanted to, I'll say, one last thought that I've been having for the last one hour, and then I'll pass it on to you, Vilma. I think, uh, you know, without making artificial comparisons, I think ASAR has done to the world of technical assessment and measurement, you know, this bringing in of an ordinary person who can play a major role. I think in many ways, and, you know, Vilma is, has strong academic credentials, I don't, but I feel eye for eye, uh, under the guidance and you know love and care of Ashok Kothwal and his team, has brought these kinds of you know uh, serious discussions on important policy matters uh, available to ordinary people. And one of the things I love most about I4I is now that you have a Hindi version of yes. uh, many of the things that you do, because if more people are not engaged in these discussions, if more people are not engaged and participating in these actions we are talking about, uh, then, uh, I mean, this is needed for an India to change. So that's my parting shot, Vilima. You wonderfully said, and thank you. Thank you to I for I, and, uh, and we hope to do this again very soon. And come on the 18th of January yes. to India <laughs> International Center for the launch of ASAP 2022.